Good morning and welcome to Skillman this morning. We are thankful that you are here as we continue, literally, to make the case for grace. We are an imperfect people. I think if, if I ask, are we perfect, we would all admit we are, we are not. We are an imperfect people, but we have found the perfect Savior. That's why this passage of Scripture that we kind of base this series on, Titus 2.11, means something in this moment. For the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men. What does that look like in terms of an individual's life? So this morning, I want to spend some time talking about Peter. I relate to Peter a lot. Peter is impetuous. Peter is emotional. Peter wears his feelings on his sleeve. Peter sometimes speaks without thinking and looks at all the consequences of the things that he has said. Guilty. I do all of those things. And I tend to process life through my emotional side before it ever gets to my thinking side, which I think is what Peter does and has done throughout his ministry, throughout his life. You see it in every encounter with Christ. That's who he is. And that's what he does. And yet Jesus uses this guy in real ways, profound ways, as broken and as difficult as he was, which kind of leads me. To this moment that I'm going to repeat over and over this morning, you are never going to not need God's grace. I understand the double negative is an English malaprop, and I don't need to do it. But I think it just communicates so clearly. You are are going to never not need God's grace. God's grace is something everybody needs continually. And it's certainly true. When it comes to the life of Peter. So I want to kind of take us through a couple of scriptures this morning. The first one is in Matthew 26 verses 33 through 35. You will remember the scene. It is the Last Supper. Jesus has gathered his disciples. They're all there. They're in the upper room. They are sharing one with the other. And Jesus looks at them and he kind of gives them the foreshadowing about what's going to occur. Things are about to get very different. They're going to come and they're going to take me and I'm going to die. And Peter sits back and he says, that's not going to happen. And Jesus says, more than that, all of you are going to go away. Look at verse 33 in Matthew 26. Peter's words, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And Jesus replies, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And Peter, again, heart on his sleeve, coming out with what he really believes is true about him, makes this statement, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the disciples said the same. The Garden of Gethsemane happens, right? You have this crowd of people that come with torches. And they come and they arrest Jesus in the night. And they take him to the courtyard of the high priest where this illegal trial is going to take place. All of those things we're intimately familiar with. We understand. We know that it happens. And yet there's something about Peter. Even though what they have done... 
They've scattered just as Jesus said they would. Jesus said, you all are going to go away and they have all gone away. But there is Peter and at least he's kind of following as close as he possibly can. And a servant girl walks over to him and says, aren't you one of those Jesus guys? Aren't you one of those guys that, that's been around Jesus? And Peter goes, nope, that is not me. Not been around him, not seen him, not had anything to do with him. And Peter moves on. He kind of gets to the center part of that courtyard. And there is this fire, a fire of burning coals that's there that he warms himself by. And the question comes again. Aren't you one of those that was following Jesus? And he says, I'm not that guy. I didn't do that thing. I want you to look at Luke chapter 22, verse 60. Because as he is asked the third time, aren't you one of those ones with Jesus? He starts calling curses down and saying, no, I am not one of those folks. Verse 60, as he's doing all that, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And I want you to hear these next words. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Let that moment sit there for a second. I've denied you once. I've denied you twice. And as I've called curses down, I've denied you a third time. And right as the words come out of his mouth and out of his lips... Jesus turns and he looks at him. And Peter remembers the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And he goes outside. And he weeps bitterly. The epic fail. It doesn't get any more pronounced than that, does it? And so you know what happens after that moment. Jesus is taken before Pilate. He then is scourged after the scourging. He is taken by the Romans and he is crucified. You hear those words that resound with us and yet have this incredible finality to them and everybody is left wondering what's coming next when he says, it is finished. They take him down off the cross and Joseph of Arimathea claims his body and takes him to a tomb that's already been bought and paid for. It's not even his tomb. He's laid there. And then you find this scene in John's gospel. You find the, the women who have been there and they have been told Jesus isn't here. You read that account in Mark's gospel and Mark says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. And so they come walking in and they say, the Lord is not here. And that started this race. Brandon's a runner. Evidently, John was too, because John just kept on going and he outruns Peter by a large margin. But when he gets to the tomb, he doesn't go in. He had a thing about that. But Peter, impetuous as he is, 
though he is plotting and though he is not a fast runner, he is consistent. And he runs along as well. And he runs right into the tomb. And there he finds grave clothes. Now, you know what happens over the next 40 days. Over the next 40 days, there are these appearances, there are these sightings, there are these moments with Jesus appearing and the disciples see them. You see it with Thomas, you see it in other places. It's recorded throughout of the four Gospels that are there. All those things that happen, but no personal interaction, not with Peter. No connection with him. No explanation. Remember, the last time Peter has seen Jesus is when he's denied him the third time. And he turns and he looks at him. And then you come to John chapter 21. The disciples are out fishing. But I want you to attempt to put yourself inside the mind of Peter... Jesus is alive. There's no denying that. But how do you feel in that moment? How do you feel through these days where Jesus has continued to appear? You denied Jesus three times and he looked at you. What does that look look like? Is it a look of anger? Is it a look of, I told you so? Is it a look that just kind of comes back, shaking of the head? Is it a look of hurt? Is it a look of disappointment? Whatever the look, Peter obviously hasn't gotten it out of his mind. I want you to think about times in your life... When you said you were going to do something, you were going to do the next right thing, whether it was when you were young or whether it's been since you've been older and you didn't. And I want you to think about your mom and dad, in my case, my grandparents, who just had this look. I saw that look this morning when Josh and Danielle turned and looked at Reagan for a second like, come on. Time to get on down the hallway. You know what the look's like. You've given the look. You've been the recipient of the look. But the look is in Peter's mind. And I want you to think about what he ends up doing. He decides the only thing that makes any sense for me is to go back and do what I know how to do best. He goes back and he starts to fish again. Now, this scene that we're going to come to in John chapter 21 is almost reminiscent of another scene that you will find in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus calls the disciples the first time because Peter is there fishing as well. And he says, throw your net over here and you'll catch some fish. And when they catch all these fish and they bring them to the shore, Jesus walks up to Peter and Peter starts backing away from Jesus. And he says, get away from me. Get away from me. I'm a a sinful man. I don't know what to do with somebody like you. And Jesus says, I'm going to take your life. And I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And so here we are again in this moment one more time. And look what happens. John 21 beginning in verse 5. Jesus speaking says... 
Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in a boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, and I want you to pay attention to this phrase, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Do you find Peter doing anything odd here? Listen. I grew up in the water. I never put clothes on to jump in. Did you? And I asked myself, what's that about? Why does he do that? And I come back to this moment. I think Peter is experiencing two things that a lot of us experience from time to time. The first thing is guilt. He experiences guilt over something he wished he had done that he didn't do. A way he wished he responded that he didn't respond. But I think the second thing that Peter is dealing with is shame. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. Guilt motivates you to do better. Shame paralyzes you and keeps you from accepting what God is trying to do. And I think that's where Peter finds himself. He finds himself in this moment of guilt and shame. And see, the other thing shame causes you to want to do is to cover up and hide. Genesis chapter 3. When they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what is the first thing they did? They covered up and they hid. That's what shame causes us to do. And so Peter, wanting to be presentable, puts that cloak on. He wants to make it as good as he possibly can, so he covers up. There's a second thing that happens there that I think is kind of interesting. I think we have this picture. This is a coal of burning fire that I just want you to see. The only times in Scripture that you find that particular term is here and in that whole instance when Peter is denying Jesus. And so you have this moment, this coal, uh, this fire of burning coals that's there is something that's important. Because it's what we call a memory trigger. And John is alerting his readers that something here is about to happen that's going to be very, very interesting. So I thought, what is a good example of a memory trigger? And so I found this iPhone video of Harper. I want you to see this. This is a memory trigger that Harper has. Some sound, fellas.
That's exactly you don't like how Rosie? I feel. Exactly. All better. That's exactly how I feel when I hear "let it go." I just I, Chris will tell you. I just I ball up into a ball and just start to cry. Memory triggers are those sights, sounds, things that just cause us to go backward and think about things. Some of them are wonderful. We have memory triggers that are wonderful. You hear a baby cry and you think about the first time you heard your baby cry and what that meant to you. You see a mom holding a baby and you think about what that was like for you and how precious and good that moment is. So memory triggers are are good and bad, but that's what's going on here. There's a memory trigger that's happening here for Peter. And you start, you start to feel the plot thicken at this moment. How many times has Peter wept over the last time he was at a fire like this? And so I want you to see this second interchange between Jesus, Peter, and a fire. Jesus asked him a question that Peter does not respond to. In fact, he responds, but not to the question Jesus asked. Jesus asked him, Peter... Do you love me? And Peter says, of course, Lord, you know that I love you. But that's not exactly what Jesus asked. Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me more than anything in all the world? Do you love me to the point that I'm going to be the Lord of your life and I'm going to be the one to whom you turn everything toward? And Peter responds to that question by saying, Lord, you know, I love you like a brother. I phileo you. It's where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's the kind of love that we share in fellowship with one another. But it's not the kind of devotion that Jesus is asking Peter about. And and so Jesus responds to that by saying, feed my sheep. A second time, he asked him, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter looks at him and says, Lord, you know that I... Phileo you, I I love you like a brother. And Jesus looks at him and he says, tend my lambs. I want you to hear the exact words in John 21, 17. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter is hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus changes the question the third time. He looks at him and he says, Peter, do you really love me like a brother? And it hurt him to his core. But really what Jesus is doing is two things. See, I don't ask anybody in my life if they love me if I think they don't. My, my, my psyche can't handle that. I'll break down into a puddle. And so here is Jesus, I think, affirming something. Peter, you may not be able to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But let me tell you something. I loved you that much. 
And look at what I have done to demonstrate that. I went to the cross. I've taken this moment. I'm not holding any of this against you. And so you have Jesus the third time saying, I'm taking you right where you are. But I love you too much to let you stay there. I'm going to move you forward. There will be a day. When you will be able to love me the way that I'm asking in the first two questions. But I'm okay with that's not today. I will take you exactly where you find yourself in this moment. And I will be able to do what needs to be done. It's a memory trigger moment. Three times Peter has denied Jesus. Three times Jesus asked about love and devotion from from Peter. Bill Amen, who is Billy Faye Curtis's father, had a statement that he used to say that I thought was incredibly profound. When he was asked about the character of a particular individual, he said, he's as honest as a broke man can be. And I thought about that in terms of Peter. And I thought about that in terms of my own life. You know what? I'm as honest as a broke man can be. I don't have the ability to be completely, absolutely honest all the way through with nothing between me and God. But God takes me right where I am and he daily conforms me to the image of Christ. And he takes me and he uses me right where I find myself to his honor and to his glory. Does Peter get used here? And you know the answer to that question. He absolutely does. He's as honest as a broke man can be. And he's going to use Peter for his glory and for kingdom business. You are never going to not need God's grace. And here's what I find interesting. Jesus knew about Peter's failure before he ever failed. Look at the prayer Jesus prayed for Simon prior to the crucifixion in Luke 22. He says, but I have prayed for you. Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. He is saying to him, look, your failure is going to be public. Everybody's going to know about it. Everybody for 2,000 plus years since then knows about it. Your failure is going to be right on Main Street, right from the jump. Everybody's going to see it. They're going to understand it. And here's what you have the ability to do. There will be others who will fail. And some of those failures will be absolutely public. And everybody will sit and talk about the reproach that had been brought upon Christ because of this thing that you have done. And yet, God takes those hurts. God uses those hurts. God takes those things and says, through this weakness, my grace can be made manifest. It's not about our failure. It's always about our Savior. And it's always about what our Savior does. Peter had the epic fail. We understand the epic fail. Paul Harvey used to talk about the rest of the story. So what's the rest of the story here? Jesus ascends. He goes back and he's with the Father. The church of about 120 gather together in an upper room because they've been told to wait for the Comforter because the Comforter is going to come. 
And in that moment, the comforter does come and the Holy Spirit begins to descend. And it looks like little tongues of fire that settles all over people. And they find themselves in Jerusalem at a time of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, when people of every nationality, of every tribe, of every creed have come in here. And Peter and his cohorts begin to preach the gospel. And it says in the book of Acts that everyone began to hear the gospel in their own language. That this miraculous moment happens and it's Peter who is leading the charge in this. And he talks about this Jesus whom you crucified is Savior and Lord. And they are pricked in their conscience and they say, what do we need to do? Brothers, what is it we need to do to change so that we don't have this guilt on us anymore? And he says, repent every one of you and be baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 38. Good preaching ought to to call people to do something different. And 3,000 plus folks added to the church in that moment. God uses the guy who has denied him the most, publicly failed to make a kingdom difference because they were willing to take their epic failure and allow themselves to be immersed in Jesus. If you go through the book of Acts and you get to Acts chapter 4, you find Peter and John in front of the Sanhedrin, and they're there because they've healed a man on the Sabbath day. And they're called into account for what it is that they have done. And when you get to Acts chapter 4, verse 13, this is the thing that even those that were opposed to them couldn't take for granted when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that they had been with Jesus. See, fully embracing our failures allow God the freedom to let his strength be manifest in our weakness. Most of us have heard about Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey's got radio programs, he's done Financial Peace University, so many different things that he has done. Most of us don't know he was bankrupt. Why is he so adept at dealing with financial issues? Because he knows how to fail. And he tries to help other folks learn some lessons so they don't have to get to the place where he got to. Mother Teresa said these words that I thought were incredibly profound. She said, I don't think there is anyone who needs God's help and grace as much as I do. Sometimes I feel so helpless and weak. I think that's why God uses me. When you can lead from there. When you can serve from there. When you can love from there. Because great men and great women learn to lead from their disabilities. Christ was great because he was the servant of all. Peter was a great leader because he was so in touch with his brokenness and failure. But he's not done messing up. Remember, you are never going to not need God's grace 
And you get over to Galatians and you find out that Peter has a problem. He's fallen into the trap of legalism. And in Galatians 2 verse 11, you find Paul saying this about Peter. He says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Paul confronts Peter and reminds him that the gospel is for others. And you know what? That moment happens for all of us. When we get in that place where we feel superior spiritually, where we feel like we've got it all together and we are not in touch with our own failure, our own brokenness and the fact that we need the God of grace every single day in our life. When we don't feel that and when we don't practice that, we set ourselves up for these incredible moments for the enemy to come in and do what he does. Remember what Peter says, this same Peter, your enemy is a roaring lion, and he seeks whom he may devour. Why was Peter able to write that? Because Peter lived it. He understood it. Rebecca Pipert wrote a book that was called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. And she talks about, in in that book a campus ministry she was a part of in Portland, Oregon. And she said it was an amazing ministry, and there were lots of students who were coming to the Lord during those moments, and they encountered a guy by the name of Bill. Bill was one of these guys that you can just sort of imagine. He, um, he, he had mussed-up hair. He kind of wore a T-shirt that looked always a little bit dirty. He was wearing holy jeans because, before they became fashionable, and you paid tons of money for them. And he also walked around barefoot. It didn't matter if it was snowing, sleeting, or raining. He walked around barefoot, but he became a Christian. There was a church across the street from that campus. And that church wanted to have a real significant outreach to students on that campus. And so they started inviting people to come to church. Wouldn't you know it, in Stroll's Bill. Walks right down the center aisle. And the church was full. There were no places to sit. And so what he ends up doing is he just says, fine. And he gets down on the floor. Now I want you to think about that moment a second. And I want you to think about what that would look like. The fact that I got up is a grace of God right there. Very good. <laughs> I want you to think about that for a second. How would you feel if we're sitting here doing church and you have somebody walk in? They look very different than you do. And they sit down right in the middle. What do you do? There's a guy from the back that sees this. Now, he's kind of dressed like I am this morning, except better. He's got on the $3,000 suit. 
His shoes are polished to the point that you can, I mean, it's reflection. You can see yourself in them. Everything matches. Pocket square, tie, cufflinks. It's all good. No, let's put that wrong. It's great. You look at him and you go, wow. And he starts making a beeline walking down to Bill. Everybody in that church had an idea of what they thought was about to happen. There were some that went, oh boy, this is going to be ugly. Because he's going to tell him, you can't sit in the middle of the floor. I'll, I'll create some space for you. I'll create a seat for you. But, but you, you, you can't do this. You cannot sit in this floor. Some are sitting there thinking, maybe he's just going to take him out the door, put some money in his pocket, and send him on his way. Because nobody knows Bill except some of the people that were involved in that campus ministry. So he comes down and he gets to Bill, and there's silence. Even the guy preaching goes, okay, we're going to watch this. And here's what he does. And he worships with him. Piper Dinner Book says there wasn't a dry eye in the place. Twice. <laughs> so I want to say to you you are never going to not need God's grace. And we, as the people of God, have to be the folks that demonstrate what that looks like. So here's what I want to say to us. There are two groups of people that make my heart beat really fast when it comes to ministry. One group of people are people like Peter. That because of guilt and shame in their life, they are so broken by the things they have done and they feel so far away with God. They come into these places wondering if this God of the universe really wants anything to do with them. And then there's a second group of people that I will call Gentiles. They're the ones that church has never ever worked before. In fact, they're the ones that have never ever tried church before. They kind of look like Bill. They come walking in and they look very different and their attitude is very different and they don't have a lot of church ease that fits for them because they don't know what church ease is. They don't know how to speak the language. They don't know how to do the look. They don't know any of it. The beginning of this year, we preached a series of sermons and in that series of sermons, one of them was the signs of Skillman. And there are three signs that I want to kind of help us pay attention to as we close this morning. One sign says, you matter to God. And we say that to everybody that walks in this door. A second sign says that grace happens here. This place is a place that is purveyors of God's grace seven days a week, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, if that's what needs to happen. That's who we are. That's what we do. But here's another sign. Come as you are. And here's what I say to us. And here's what I say to those groups of people. 
You come as you are. I'll come as I am. And we'll love. And we will let God be glorified as together we figure out how to do life. And there will be times we don't get it right. And there will be times we may say some things that are judgmental and harsh. Forgive us. There will be some times that we sit there and say, you know what? It is now time for you to understand some things. Because as Harold and Ron last week gave us this perfect picture of discipleship and grace, we are being called to something. We are, we are being called to be conformed to the image of Christ. We are not. Remember what Paul does in Romans chapter 7 when he talks about the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I, I do, I don't want to do. What a wretched man I am. And then he starts Romans chapter 8 by saying, therefore, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We are being called to live a different kind of life. Romans 12 transformed by the renewing of your mind, not conformed to the world anymore. And so both parts of that equation come together. But it's about love. And it's about being men and women. So a church, as folks from the outside come and they walk among us and they do things among us, are we willing to sit there and say, God's grace calls me to come sit beside you right in the middle of the auditorium. Because after all, I need God's grace too. Let's stand and sing.